Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is December 22nd, 2014, and this is episode uh, 1489 of the Survival Podcast. And it's a Monday. That means I'm doing your emails, responses to your emails, and those are emails that you sent to jack at the survival podcast.com. Again, jack at the survival podcast.com. And uh, if you send that email to me, the new formula to be even more sure that I will see it is to put TSPC in the subject line. Uh, four letters, all together, no spaces. TSPC for the survival podcast. I think that'll work better than the article for JAG format. Uh, it's a lot of you are using it already, and I am finding a lot of emails that I believe heretofore may have disappeared into the spam box of doom. So that would be the best form. Again, TSPC in the subject line. Send that email to Jack at the Survival Include a link to your source material if doing so. Make your point or give me a comment in one to two sentences. Fill in the details after that. That's the most likely way to get through my screening methodology uh, because I have to do things quickly just on the volume of email alone. And uh, before I get into your emails today, let's go ahead and take care of those sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one, KnifeKits.com. Hey, one of the, the lead story today is going to be the concept of teaching self-reliance to children. I can't think of a better way than teaching kids to actually do stuff, right? To just actually be able to do something that, that heretofore someone else had to do, like making a knife. That could just be one of many skills you could teach kids, but it's a great one. And uh, it is Christmas. I guess if you order one from KnifeKits.com right now, you're not going to see it by Christmas Day. Uh, we're only, what, three days away from the big day. But uh, it'll be here soon enough thereafter, and uh, maybe it's uh, an after-Christmas present. You could uh, give that kid a picture of what's coming or something. Just something to consider, KnifeKits.com. Uh, is a great way to uh, to learn to make knives, whether you're a master bladesmith or just getting started. And if you need help, give them a call. They'll help you out. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. Easiest sponsor I've ever had to endorse in my life because all I have to tell you is I subscribed in 1994. It's going to be 2015 in about eight days, and I'm still a subscriber. That means we're heading to my 15th year. Or actually, no, whoa, 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 wait a minute. 21st year, 21 years as a subscriber to Backwoods Home Magazine. Uh, I don't really think I can give a better endorsement to a company than to have consistently done business with them for 21 years. That's how much I love the work that they do over at BackwoodsHome.com. Check them out today and you'll learn more. Remember, Knife Kits, Backwoods Home, and many of our other sponsors do provide discounts to members of the Survival Podcast Support Brigade. You want to help support this show? Join the Support Brigade. It'll cost you about 18.3 cents an episode. Call it 20 cents. So at the end of an episode, if you think it's worth 20 cents, consider joining. You'll get a lot of great discounts, and your membership will pay for itself. Uh, check it out again, thesurvivalpodcast.com. Click on Members, Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, Active Duty, and Prior Service. First responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters all qualify for a service discount. Just email me with service discount. You might want to put TSPC as well in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will get back to you with a discount code to save you more money on an already great product. Remember, if you are already a member and did not take advantage of the discount, you need to do it at renewal time. So the best time to do it is before, not after you join. Uh, again, just click on members at the survival podcast.com. Next up today, let us look at the history segment of the year is 1489. I have two for you today from the awesome Alex Shrug on the TSP wiki. The first definitive description of typhus and plus and minus sign math made simple and complex. 
The math one's pretty cool. I'm going to recommend you read it yourself today, even if you only list, usually listen to the one I read. But I'm going to read the first definitive description of typhus. The label typhus describes several bacterial diseases, but not typhoid, characterized by high fever of 104 degrees or more, joint pain, and a dull red rash around the middle of the body. It's passed by lice, rodent fleas, ticks, and mites. The various kingdoms of Spain have joined to kick the Muslims of Grenada off of the peninsula. The Muslims are maintaining a losing defensive position as they have been cut off from the sea and their supply lines. But an epidemic of typhus hits the Spaniards as they maintain the siege. The Spanish forces have lost 3,000 soldiers in action and 17,000 to disease. Typhus has been in Europe for hundreds of years, but the de description of the disease during the siege of Granada allows us a definitive identification by medical historians. My take by Alex Shrugged. Along with the Black Death and dysentery, typhus will kill more troops in the field than the actual battle until World War II. Typhus goes by many names, including ship fever and jail fever. It shows up in crowded, unsanitary conditions. Many diseases of the Middle Ages have disappeared due to the improved sanitation standards and better insect carrier control. DDT pesticide helped control lice and fleas. Soldiers in World War II were sprayed directly with DDT. And in the southern states of the USA, DDT trucks would, DDT trucks would spray neighborhoods. Children ran into the street to be sprayed. DDT was eventually outlawed after the book Silent Spring was published and panicked people over DDT and other concerns, whether valid or not, seemed trivial in comparison to the human death and suffering since that time due to malaria and other insect-borne illnesses that could have been solved with this cheap, easy-to-use pesticide. Um, I think DDT is a, a bad thing overall. I, I am not in favor of spraying most things at most times, but I remember watching an interview with a man in, in, in Africa where I think in his nation close to a million people a year die of malaria, and he said DDT would save a million lives a year. How do you tell that guy that he shouldn't be using it? And I think that when we look at its use in the United States, I think it was overused, but I think it was overused with caveat. I don't think people actually understand the sanitation absence in this country from about 1960 back especially throughout the rural South. Uh, this country developed into a very modern nation after World War II, but it took a while. It did not happen overnight. And it is probably the case that DDT, for as much damage as I do believe it does, uh, probably not to the level that Silent Spring claimed, but I do not think it's safe and, and healthy for people <laughs> which is actually a case people have tried to make in the past. Um, I do think it probably saved a lot more lives than it than it than it, inter it, it, it interrupted or or caused harm to. I think the problem is that whenever an industry is built around something, it gets overused. So once the government starts buying DDT and spraying it, well, then the people that make it want them to buy more, so they come up with more reasons and more ways and more times for it to be sprayed. And when sometimes the original reason has passed. Uh, we continue to see it, it being pushed for more and more use. This is the unholy alliance of industry and government. When industry and government combine their forces, it generally brings you the worst of things. I think there's places in the world today where DDT could save lives. And as someone that is so much an advocate for sustainable and beyond organic healthy practices, it's a difficult thing to say. But my take from history is we should learn to speak the truth even when it's not convenient and doesn't necessarily align with our ideology. 
Anyway, with that, let us get into uh, the main part of the day's show. Before we get into the lead story, we have to do the Monday Prepper Scenario. This is where I give you scenarios that do occur and do happen to people and people have to deal with on a weekly basis, uh, or on a weekly basis, on a, on, a, on a daily basis somewhere in the world. These are not end-of-the-world apocalyptic scenarios, a la Doomsday Prepper idiocy. These are real-world things that happen. These are the things we should be preparing for. Last Monday's prepper scenario was your home has been destroyed by fire. Luckily, no one was killed or even severely injured. Most anything of value in your home is ruined and or gone. You're left with the clothes on your back, what you keep in your vehicles, and any items that are in detached structures only. Describe how you now begin to put the pieces back together, how you deal with insurance, etc. If you keep documents, money, etc. in a firebox, fire safe, you can assume those survived. For me... I have to tell you, it would be a catastrophic loss, but the most important things to us would be protected in fireboxes, and there's enough stuff outside of the house stored in the outbuildings that we at least have something to re -begin, re begin rebuilding our lives with. The biggest hole in my preps for this one is something I know better than. We have not done enough to catalog everything we own with, with digital photography, and, th and that should be done. We do off-site backup of our computers, which I think is a tremendously important thing if you really value the data that's on your computers, because if your computer burns, the data is gone. Uh, that is something that you may really want to look at, at least for things like Pictures that you find to be extremely important to you and data that you find to be extremely important to you. And you can use systems like Carbonite is one, a very good one, uh, and other cloud-based uh, backup system uh, solutions. And you don't have to back up everything. You can set it to back up certain folders, certain computers, certain things. And I think on that note, it's, it's, that's why I love things like Flickr. Uh, Instagram, Facebook, and stuff like that, at least when, when you post stuff like that, it's stuff that you don't want to keep private anyway, um, it's, now, it's now there. It's now in the cloud, so to speak. And I think that's, that's pretty valuable. Um, I did a show on this, and I'll put a link in today's show notes to that show. And it was from a listener who went through this exact scenario. And one of the things that we learned in that is that when you have the reclamation crew coming in and boarding up your windows and stuff like that, Even though it's a time when all you want to do is go to a hotel somewhere and take a shower or go to a family member's and take a shower and just try to figure out what the hell you're going to do, uh, you should pretty much camp out at your place until it's done because usually something of value is left, and this man had things stolen from him by the people that were contracted to board up his windows. And I think that the level of low-life piece of shit you must be to steal from somebody in that situation is, is beyond comprehension. But I know that if my house is ever burnt, if there's anything left, uh, and they're doing something like the insurance company sends out contractors to board it up and, and, and what have you, uh, I will be sitting outside with a gun in a lawn chair until the work is done. And if somebody tries to leave with my shit, I'm going to put them to the ground. Um, I, I was absolutely blown away by how shitty human beings can be when I had that interview. I'll, again, I'll put a link to the, the show notes uh, today. I, 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 it is one thing that when people loot uh, in, a, in a, you know, a natural disaster environment, it's scummy as hell, but you can understand some levels of the human psyche, and many times those people that are looting are people themselves who've lost, let's say, more or have nothing, and they're trying to survive. Sometimes they're just scum. It, it varies. But at least it's, it's you know, scum being scum that you expect to be scum. I, I'll put it to you that way. Or somebody just trying to survive, one or the other. In this situation, you have someone employed 
for the very purpose of responding to something that happened. You have basically a, a, a type of first responder job and that you have that first responder stealing from those who have been victimized. Please listen to that show. Let me give you today's show, uh, today's Monday Prepper scenario. You have all the way till January to think about this one because we won't be back until uh, January 2nd uh, after I close down on the 23rd. And this is also something that's happened to people. You're in a public building and someone starts shooting people at random. This is a public building that does not allow concealed carry and you have followed the law. How do you assess the threat, attempt to survive, and help others if you can in this situation? So imagine you went to the courthouse. You can't carry. They'd be walking through a metal detector. Somehow a criminal mastermind genius figures out how to get in there with a gun, like shooting the guard and running through the damn thing and then starts shooting at people. There's a hail of bullets going on all around you. Do you hide in a corner? I hope not. What do you do? How do you try to increase your odds of survival in this bad situation where the conventional answer of get off the X and return fire is not one of your options? Anyway, sorry to leave you with that low note as we go into the main topics of, uh, of today's show. Again, these are all emails that were sent to me uh, at Jack of the Survival Podcast with TSPC in the subject line is the best way to do that. And uh, be brief, make your point. Fill in your details. Most of the people here did that. That's part of why they're on today's show. Anyway, the first one comes from, I don't know. I'm going to call him Kohler like the faucet because his name sort of, and his email sort of looks like Kohler. Uh, anyway, uh, a long time ago, I was, I did a show about the, the futility of voting in this election cycle and how it wasn't going to matter. And right now, if you're paying attention to what your new Republican majority is doing, you can see my point. Anyway, um, oh, by the way, in that election, I, I got the Senate within one seat on my prediction. There was one more Republican pickup than I called. Uh, but I, I almost got 100% on, on calling the senatorial election this year, even though I said voting wouldn't matter. And part of the fact is that since a redneck like me could, could tell you that and could say this is what it's going to be, that kind of proved that voting at the federal level, anyway, didn't matter this election cycle, especially for me. Um, all the people I would have voted for, if you put a gun to my head and said pick one or the other, one by margins of 20% or more. Really didn't make a point. But I got a lot of heat for that episode and the article that went with it. And I even got hate mail. I got violent hate mail from some people that were so enraged that I would say such a horrible thing. And one of the things I challenged the audience with was to send me uh, ideas alternatives. What would make a bigger difference than, than voting in the world, in the nation? What is something that each individual could do that would actually have a greater impact on personal liberty and freedom in this nation? Well, Kohler, again, I'm calling him that because he didn't leave a real name, not even a first name, said, teaching one kid a year that isn't your child how to be self-reliant, planting a garden, canning, grafting fruit trees, hunting, cleaning game, even how to look at news and seeing and finding the truth hidden behind the partisanship. Our niece is 14, and she's been showing an interest in this lately, but her father, my brother, has no interest in it. So my wife and I want to see if we can start to teach her this and more. Um, I completely agree. I completely agree. And uh, I think it, that it's great to teach the kids, but I also think that just walking the walk and talking the talk for long enough eventually begins to influence people you'd think it might not. A perfect example is uh, my brother-in-law, who's a police officer, 
who I recently sent an email to about the follow-up I did with the Eric Garner thing when he had told me that he believed that you know the police officer in question was not using what the New York Police Department calls a chokehold in banning it and, and that, that there was no charges to be filed by a grand jury under the charges that were brought forward. And I disagreed and I came back and looked at it and said, man, this, this sucks that, that, that this is acceptable and legal, but really there were no charges to be filed there. I mean, if we want police to arrest people over selling cigarettes for 75 cents, and they tell somebody they're under arrest, and that person does not submit to arrest, the police can use and will use force. And if it happens to be on a guy with a bad heart condition and, 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 and you know chest problems and breathing problems, it could result in his death, and that's completely okay under the law. It's not okay completely morally, but it's completely okay under the law. And it was, and I acknowledge that. I sent him an email, and I said, dude, I want you to know um, that I don't want to agree with this, But I do, and I also sent him a link to Stefan Molyneux, who's like the uber anarchist, right? Uh, and I told him, I said, you're not going to like this guy, but he's going to make your case for you. And so when I met him recently at a, a, a family function, uh, my brother-in-law says to me, he goes, you know, he goes, you're consistent and you're fair. And that's why I recommend people listen to your podcast. This guy's a cop and his wife's a teacher. Just, just to drive home what's going on here. And uh, so we talked a little bit about the case, and he said, that Stefan guy, you know, he goes, for like 75% of that, that video, I didn't know what you were talking about. I thought that there, this guy is completely and totally in sync with everything that I believed. He goes, then at the end, and like Stefan just goes off about how if you want police doing this, this is what you're saying is okay, right? Uh, he said, wow, yeah, okay, you know. Then he said something I was really taken back by. He goes, I was actually really more interested in what you had to say about teachers and teaching. And they're actually looking at their stuff now thinking and realizing that the public education system isn't all that it's cracked up to be. And his wife's a lifelong teacher and a good one. But she sees the fact that she can't change the system at all. And that no one in the system gives a damn about her changing anything. And that anything she tries to do for the better is basically said, yeah, you don't get to do that. And when she has a problem with a student, the, the principal and the school doesn't care. They just say, it's your problem, you deal with it. The parents, uh, by and large, she has a large percent of her parents that don't care. That she'll have a child that's had a problem and she'll set up a parent-teacher meeting with them and they agree to come and then they don't show up. And they're wondering what the alternative is. Now, they're not going off to the Jack Spierko free market alternative system yet. But they've taken the first step down the path, accepting that the current sold-to-you solution is a lie. And then it's just a matter of how swiftly you travel down the path you start to realize some of the things we'll talk about more and more today. Anyway, I do believe that teaching one child a year about self-reliance is more effective than voting. One a year, if you're 25 when you figure that out, and you only live to be 50, that's 25 individuals that will probably replicate what you've done, who will create others that will replicate what you've done. And in that way, one person might touch thousands and thousands and thousands of lives with the message of individual responsibility, self-sufficiency, and personal liberty. Just a thought as we get toward the end of the year. Um, the next one I have today Um, and before I go on, I want to talk about something. I've had people complain that these shows on Monday are more on libertarian 
you know, bent and some permaculture built into them. Um, I want to teach about liberty here. That's what self-sufficiency, self-reliance, modern survivalism is all about. If you don't have liberty, what the hell are you surviving for? I mean, if you just want to survive, right, go get yourself thrown into a minimum security prison and they'll feed you and clothe you and your life will suck, but you'll survive. You get free medical care. I mean, like if you're not free, then you're not surviving. You're existing, right? Um, and if you're not, like, even if you're imprisoned in some way, you should be strain, striving for freedom. And I can't teach you about freedom if I don't teach you about the things that mislead you and control you. You can't be free in spirit if you're a slave in mind, even if your mind tells you that you're free. You're still a slave. You're still part of the matrix. And we'll, we'll talk about that more today. But the other thing I want to say on this is that, well, <laughs> These are, these are listener feedback shows. And that means that 100% of the content that's in them comes from you. And I work with what I have. And while a lot of stuff doesn't get on the air, I can tell you that 90% of the stuff that's on a Monday show is in the line of the stuff that we'll talk about today. And if you want me to talk about other things, send your questions in. Put TSP in the subject line. And I'll talk about any subject. And I, I would like to get a little bit more into some more of the concrete stuff. And I've sent out requests on the air for that before. But in the end, guys, these shows are what you make of them. And if you send me stuff on, on liberty and, and, and newsworthy stuff and things like that, um, then that's what most of the show is going to end up being about. All right, so next up on that line, uh, Jacob sends me a, an email, and it says, Hey, Jack, I know it's not as big a deal as everyone makes it, but with Christmas Eve approaching, would you be able to say a few words about how we shouldn't worry about the U.N. Small Arms Treaty, United Nations Small Arms Treaty? Um, yeah, here's how I feel about that. Do I, do I think this is a great thing for gun rights and liberty in the world? No. Do I really want the U.N. doing anything? No. Do I even think we should have a United Nations? No, especially since we pay for everything and everybody else bitches about us all the time. That's, that's what the UN has basically become. Um, but I do think everybody should chill the frick out about the UN Small Arms Treaty. And it, it makes me not want to be an NRA member anymore. I, I feel that the NRA has hyped this thing into the level of bullshit beyond all recognition. And it's because they want more money, more money, more money, more money. And on some levels, I'm grateful the NRA is there to push back and lobby for uh, the rights of gun owners because they're really only the, the only large enough and big enough uh, player in the business to get in to Congress at the level necessary to get shit done because your Congress is bought and paid for. So it takes money to get anything done or prevent anything from being done by them. So I get their purpose. But what happens with the, with the NRA and any group like them is they get into a point where people just say, you know what, man, I can only give you so much every year. And they keep wanting to squeeze another 2%, 3% in revenue growth out because that's, that's how business models work. And they start looking for leverage points to, to get you emotional in your response. See, if I want you to respond to marketing, the most effective marketing that I can, I can generate, especially in a warm market, people that are already on my side, people that already like me, people that already believe in what I'm doing, people that are cause driven is emotional. 
When, when I'm trying to make the first connection with a customer, I can make a case that a logical marketing platform can be just as effective or more effective depending on the product and, and the, or the service or the relationship as is emotional. But once the initial connection, this is marketing 101, guys. They, they don't teach in college, right? They teach statistical analysis and stuff. But the real street-level marketing is once we have a connection, if I can pull your emotions, I can pull from you. Now, that doesn't mean I can pull from you as an individual, but you give me a shitload of people, and I go in with an emotion-based marketing campaign, there's a percentage that I can determine that I can move off the fence that otherwise would not have acted. Okay, this is... I've done this in big companies. I've done this for small companies. It is a, a, a marketing tactic. And it's one thing when you're trying to get people to buy, you know, um, phone service, for God's sakes, and you're, you're selling them on the concept of a smaller company that cares and has higher level customer service and what it used to, the nostalgia of what it used to be like in America, which is a marketing campaign I helped build for Sage Telecom. But at least it was true, too. When you're doing it with some type of politics-driven thing and you start fabricating, lying, and accentuating, I start to lose respect for you. That's what the NRA is doing with this. So let's talk about the UN Small Arms Treaty. And what does it For all the people freaked out about it, what does it actually say? Well, the very first part of it basically states that the treaty shall not have any way to interfere with decisions and, and, and legalities made inside a nation, and that all that the nation itself, that the, their constitution, their laws, etc., supersede the treaty internally. So it only has to do with, with small arms going from one country to another. Now, as far as the, the big fear then is, oh, I have this record-keeping and record-keeping. The actual record-keeping described in the UN Small Arms Treaty for importation and exportation of arms is exactly what we already do. There's actually nothing in the Small Arms Treaty that has to be done to be compliant with the Small Arms Treaty that the United States doesn't already have laws that say that we have to do them, which is one reason I oppose it, okay? And you say, well, if it's the same, then why would you? Because there's no need for us to participate in a treaty where we already have internal law that qualifies that we don't do the things that the treaty prohibits, Right? So there's no reason to bind ourselves internationally to agree to something we've already agreed to nationally. So I think it's it's redundant, and I think it's it it is a a, a a whenever you sign a treaty with another nation, you're giving away some level of your own individual sovereignty. And I'm not about doing it at the individual level, so I'm sure as hell not about doing it at a national level. Treaties should be reserved for things where there's actual conflicts and problems, not for basic commerce. Basic commerce should come from a willingness and a desire to do business with each other. But here's the thing. The Obama administration's already signed it. And that doesn't mean jack diddly shit. Um, little Civics 101. Once a president signs a treaty, that treaty is about as valid as the toilet paper you wiped yourself and flushed down the toilet today. At that point. It means nothing. It has absolutely... No effect on the United States of America at all, period. No way, shape, or form under our Constitution. Once that's done, the treaty has to be ratified by the Senate with a two-thirds majority. You need 66 senators to vote yes to adopt a treaty and bind the U.S. to it. So 
Not only does this treaty not actually state that the United States has to do anything, that the United States does not already have laws and regulations to say that we do, not only is it being overhyped by the United Nations, but the President of the United States is not capable of binding the nation in a treaty. So there you go. Do I think it's a great thing? No. Am I going to freak out about it? No. Should you? No. Now, why I think it's actually a problem. I do believe that the intention of the UN Small Arms Treaty is to start small and go big. That once a treaty is agreed upon, amending it is much easier than getting it in place. Right? Adding to it, uh, taking it further, interpreting it differently than it was originally intended. All of these things uh, are possible. And more possible than creating a brand new treaty that does something even more invasive and just, it's like a law. Once you get a law in the books and the law allows for, let's say, a creation of the Department of Government, then that Department of Government can then use, you know, basically code to write law. And that's always a danger when a new Department of Government is created and given any authority whatsoever. That's a lot of stuff that's not illegal, violates, let's say, EPA code. There's not necessarily a law that says you can't do it, but the EPA has a code that says you're not allowed to do it. And it's enforced as a law, even though it was never passed by a legislative body, which, by the way, I feel is unconstitutional, but it is the way it is. So I don't think it's a good idea, but I just think that it has a snowball's chance in hell of being approved by our Senate and therefore does not apply to us. And the right-wing freakout about it keeps trying to say, but the future president could use its existence as justification to do more executive. If a future president's going to do something that's going to circumvent the legislature, they're going to do it with or without the small arms treaty. Even if they cite it, it doesn't matter. That's not how they're going to do it. They're going to do it by doing it. And that's a fight for that point. You can, you can what-if yourself into a world of, of non-reality and... Frankly, on both sides of the aisle, that's what most people are doing right now. So don't be happy about it, but, um, man, if the NRA calls you about it, tell them to shut the hell up. And if they want you to donate money toward a cause to find something that's not hype-based, uh, because you're not interested in hearing about a treaty that the United States is not bound by. I'm just saying. Let's go to another one. This next one comes to me from Karim, who always sends me awesome stuff. And uh, it says, apparently libraries are reaching hard to try to stay relevant in the 21st century. Granted, there is much to be said for having the ability to flip through a book, but the next generation will have very little connection with physical books to begin with. And it's at on NPR.org. Let me read this to you. Before Google, who knew? If Google can't answer your question these days, who are you going to call? A librarian, of course. Librarians continue to be cool. On contemporary TNT series, the librarians are superheroes. <laughs> so, so I gotta stop there. I gotta stop there. The equivalence of profession to heroism is obscene in this country at this point. It, 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 it's, it, it's, it's something I've jumped on a lot with teachers. Teachers are heroes. No, teachers are teachers. Some teachers are heroes. Soldiers are heroes. No, soldiers are soldiers. Some soldiers are heroes. Not everybody that does a job is immediately a hero because they do a certain job. I'm sorry. 
And, and, and to, to equate the librarian, I guess you would, because they're just like an extension of school teacher, right? It's like school teacher light or something. Anyway, let me, let me continue to read this, uh, cause you, you get the, the laugh even gets better for you when you get to this part. <laughs> for the past couple of years, librarian has popped up on the Forbes list of least stressful jobs. So it's the least stressful job, but you're a hero. Anyway. And even in this age of search engines, librarians keep making new discoveries. Several weeks ago, the folks at the iconic 42nd Street building in the New York Public Library in Manhattan happened upon a box of old reference questions ranging from 1940s to 1980s asked by patrons. As the New York Public Library spokesman Angela Montefiscini points out, the questions in and of themselves are compelling, and perhaps they speak to a gentler, more naive time. Perhaps they don't. Some are just difficult questions, Angela says. Others are historically interesting. Others are just funny. Here's a few gems lightly edited for clarity. Is it proper to go to Reno alone to get a divorce? <laughs> I just saw a mouse in the kitchen. Is DDT okay to use? 1946. The first one was 1945. Anyway, what is the lifespan of an eyelash? Answer, based on the book, Your Hair and Its Care, It's 150 Days, 1946. What does it mean when you dream of being ch chased by an elephant, 1947? Where can I rent a beagle for hunting, 1963? Can you tell me the thickness of a U.S. postage stamp with the glue on it? Answer, we couldn't tell you that answer quickly. Why don't you try the post office? Response, this is the post office, 1963. <laughs> so stupidity's not new. <laughs> Does the New York Public Library have a computer for use by the public? Answer, no, sir. 1966. This was a typewritten note found on a cataloging card. Telephone call, mid-afternoon, New Year's Day, 1967. Somewhere uncertain, somewhat uncertain female voice. I have two questions. The first is sort of an adequate one. I went to a New Year's Eve party and unexpectedly stayed over. I don't really know the host. Ought I send them a thank you note? Second, when you meet a fellow and you know he's worth $27 million, because that's what they told me, $27 million, and you know his nationality, how do you find out his name? <laughs> the library plans to begin posting some of the old questions on its Instagram account in the coming days. We were Google before Google existed, Angela explained. If you wanted to know if a poisonous snake dies if it bites itself, you'd call or visit us. Really? Yes, that question was asked. Even with Google, Siri, OnStar, DuckDuckGo, and many others in the picture, we library, we, the library continues to field questions. We get about 1,700 reference questions a month via chat, email, and phone. Angela says including tougher questions that people can't answer, even with the Internet. With so much conflicting information out there, Angela adds, it's hard to know the correct answer. A wise librarian can often help those in those situations, and that's a fact. Um, I think so to a degree. So my question to you is, there's no doubt that the library system is in danger of extinction. That if I think back, and I'm not talking about school, right? If I think back to when I first moved to Texas, um, one of the first things I got myself when I got here was a library card. I could go to a library, and it was nice in there, and it was quiet and peaceful, and there were all these wonderful books that I could read. And there were actually several libraries in the Louisville area where I was living that I could go to. And it was just a nice place to be. And there was all types of information, and as a perpetual learner, man, 
I dug libraries. And the fact that I could go there and get a great big stack of books to read and, and take them home and read them at my leisure and then return them. And if I was a couple days late, I only owed them a quarter or something like that. It was pretty cool. The last time I went to a library was about a few months ago. And it's because we went to Grape Fest in, in Grapevine, which is like a street festival. And we parked near the library, and my wife had to use the bathroom. So we stopped at the library to use the bathroom as we walked down the street to Grape Fest. The last time before that was we used a public library, which was more like a small building with some books in it, uh, to teach an Earthworks course uh, at Nick Ferguson's place in Saline, Louisiana. The time before, and that we did not look at a book one. It was just we used the space because it was convenient and you could put up a projector and a whiteboard and all that. The time before that, I don't remember. It might have been before I met my wife. And I met my wife in 1996. That tells you something, doesn't it? That once you have access to something like the Internet, the value to the individual of a library goes down. That doesn't mean that the value of the library is not still useful. So my question is, should we save the library? Or should we let it fall into obsolescence? Or should libraries become a hybrid? What I mean is I think that there are so many books that are not yet in digital format. Now, Google Books is doing its damnedest to get them in there, but cataloged in the libraries, great works, great books, ancient books that need to be photographed and translated and cataloged. Um, I think that if we're going to have government do something, the preservation and the the research of knowledge is one of the things that, well, if we're going to, if they're going to exist, uh, that's pretty useful. I also, when, when I go to this article, and I'll have a link in today's show notes to, for you, it's, it's a big, beautiful old library in New York City, and table upon table, and row upon row upon books, and I know it's just nostalgia, because I'm over 40, but when I look at that, I want to be there. I want to go there. Now, that doesn't mean that every single little hamlet needs its own library. But I do think that the concept of a storehouse of knowledge accessible to all is valid. But does it still need to be brick and mortar? Or should libraries evolve into the modern information age? And should the remaining libraries be seen more like a redundancy? And I think that maybe is their better role. But I don't have an answer for this. Uh, obviously, as someone that's for the smallest government possible, I'd like to eliminate as many expenses to the taxpayer as possible. But I can tell you that the total expense spent on libraries across the country is probably a rounding error uh, level amount compared to the total federal budget. That we would do better to get away, get rid of something like the Department of Education or the IRS than we would to get rid of library budgets. Just saying. Anyway, uh, let's go take another one. But I want to hear from you. What do you guys think? What, what should be the future role of libraries? And if you're going to base it on nostalgia, which I confess to, be honest about that. Apart from the nostalgia, what do you think we should do from a practical stance? Very, very interesting thing to think about. So recently I did a podcast on a, a free market education system. 
And it really wasn't a bashing of the public education system. It was like, how could we let that continue to exist and create a free market alternative just by removing the compulsory requirement and then making the public schools compete for business and all that they, that, that, that would be based on as, as, stu as schools lose students, the taxes are re returned to the taxpayers in an apportioned manner. So basically, every dollar that goes into the kitty can be accounted for where it came from. And that if the schools uh, were reduced by 20%, the taxes that the schools took of the 20% could then be returned right through the very system that they were taken in the same way in which they were taken. Therefore, everybody would get it back uh, at the exact ratio they put in. So it would be the fairest way I could come up with to do it. And somebody posted a link here <clears throat> to an article that was on the Huffington Post, which is certainly not my first choice for information, but I do think that there's some information there that you don't get anywhere else. And this is on education. It's by Blake Bowles, who I know nothing of other than this one article. Um, but I think I might like the guy a bit because he's author of The Art of Self-Directed Learning and Better Than College. So that's right up my alley. Anyway, his article here it was published on the 19th of uh, December, so only a few days ago. Give high school students the same freedom as college students. Imagine this. You're 16, sitting bored in chemistry class. The teacher is lecturing about acids and bases, and you're thinking to yourself, this is straight out of the textbook. I could read this on my own. So you get up and walk out without saying a word. In high school, we all know what happens next. Raise voices, stern warnings, a trip to the principal's office, and possible detention. Do the same thing in college and no one bats an eye. Why? First, a little backstory. I was that kid sitting bored in high school chemistry class. While I loved my teacher, high five Mr. Muhammad, and found chemistry interesting, the pacing rules and traditional lecture format of the class stifled me. I wanted to skip the stuff like that so I can learn from the, that I can learn from the book like acids and bases and wallow in the stuff that actually required a teacher like quantum mechanics. I wanted to do my homework during class and sometimes I wanted to simply walk out of the most boring lectures. If Khan Academy had existed in the late 90s, I would have been all over it. But in high school, attendance and participation were a bigger part of my grade, so my success required sitting listlessly at a desk for a disturbingly large amount of time. Then I went to college and suddenly everyone was singing a different tune. Don't want to show up for a class? Think you can learn it on your own? Fine. Problem sets are due each Friday. The midterm is in six weeks. The final exam is in 12 weeks. Here's a list of what each exam will test. Good luck. Sitting in class but not participating, fiddling around with your computer, not taking notes. It's all copatic. Uh, Copacetic, okay, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't have my glasses on, guys. You're probably missing out. You're lost. Bored? Get nothing out of this class? Then why are you here? Drop it and find something you love. To me, the implicit message behind these college classroom policies was you're an adult and you can make your own decisions, or at least you'd better become an adult pretty quickly to succeed here. Learning like an adult didn't mean doing everything on my own. If I needed support, I could find it in the form of office uh, in the form of office hours, study groups, and teaching assistants, but it was up to me to take them or leave them. In college, I discovered that learning atmosphere that respected, trusted, encouraged me to make responsible choices. Transitioning from high school to college felt like a liberation, and it left me wondering, why don't we do this sooner? What if we treated all high school students like college students? The main ways that college differs from high schools include class attendance isn't mandatory unless it's creative writing, rhetoric, choir, or a science lab, for example. Learning goals are largely results-orientated, i.e. achieved through final exam, paper, and project, not attendance. 
Students choose their own classes. What would happen if my childhood high school instituted these policies? What if we changed the organizational structure of school by letting students vote with their feet and learn by consent? Here's what I would predict. Attendance at the worst classes would drop sharply. Attendance in the best classes would stay roughly the same or even rise. Students and parents would demand better teachers and more elective classes. Libraries and study halls and space for clubs would be greatly expanded. The school would adapt and offer extensive new training and support in the realm of meta-learning, learning how to learn, independent study skill, work habits, personal organization, research, self-reflection on which courses to choose. Next, fewer total students would attend classes, but learning, engagement, and retention rates would skyrocket. Okay, I'm going to stop here. And I'm going to say at this point, if you want to read the rest of the article, you can. I'm going to say two things. I completely agree with the premise. And two, it cannot happen in public education. It can't happen. And it's not going to happen. And it's never going to happen. Um, the biggest reason is that public education is paid for with tax dollars. Tax dollars uh, mean that someone else is paying for your stuff, and therefore they get to decide the conditions on which you get it. See, the big reason college is like that, you pay to go there. Now, if you have a scholarship or something, we can dote on that in a second here. But in general, there's money that goes to the school that comes from you in some way. Either you've worked for it, you've been recognized by somebody who pays on your behalf, uh, or you just, you know, your parents pay for it, or you borrow the money, whatever, you pay for it. So it's a product you're purchasing. Now, I know some colleges, and many colleges actually, are public colleges, and some of the cost is offset with public dollars, but every student going there pays a fee that goes to the institution and therefore is a what? Ding, 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 a customer. So if I go down to Toyota and I buy a Toyota 4Runner and I park it in my driveway and I never use it, Toyota doesn't care. They got their money. Okay. If I put very big tires on it and mud bog with it and, 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 and roll it over a few times and mud it up, as long as it's not on a lease, as long as I paid them for it, they don't care. So whether I don't use it as intended or I do use it beyond its way as it was intended or I mess it up or I, I, I drive it like a little old lady and keep it perfect or whatever, the company that sells me the product doesn't care. They just care that I'm happy enough with my purchase that I want to buy from them again. That That's all they care about. And in, in modern car dealerships and all, that, that I will get my work done by them. They care about that to a degree, but they really care that I buy the product and I come back and buy it again. That's it. So when you go to a college, the professor that's teaching a class is just there to teach a class. He's paid to teach a class. He teaches his class his way. He has his materials that he puts out. He has his methodology for grading, etc. And his only obligation is to provide that. If you don't show up, you don't show up. He doesn't give a shit because you're a paying customer. And he knows that if he's a dick about things, that you can just drop his class and take another class. And he knows that if enough students drop his class that he'll be out of a job or he'll be demoted or he'll be in some type of a, 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 an alternative position or be forced to teach things he doesn't want to teach, that he needs to keep his enrollment high enough to justify his existence, at least to a degree. Where a public school teacher has no concerns about that whatsoever. None. You're going to put kids in my seat. They're going to be here. I don't have to do anything. I just have to follow the instruction book. So that can't happen in high school. It can't happen in public high school under the current system of compulsory education. Immediately, if it did, we would already be doing away largely with the compulsory requirement. The way I think it can work, 
that public schools get public funding based on how much they're used. That was my plan, basically. If a student leaves, they take their money with them. They don't get it back, but the taxpayer that paid for it gets it back. But what if that student only uses the school 10% of the time? Could that school then still get 10% of the revenues if it had to compete for it? So if homeschoolers decided, hey, you know what? The French program at the public school is pretty good. We'd like to learn French. And enough of them went there to justify a class. Could the public institution still keep its piece of the public pie? Now, again, I would prefer a completely do away with public education. I really would. But I'm willing to make the deal to get somewhere as a realist. I, I think that's a pretty good deal. I don't know that French would be where it would happen, but I think that do we have these big buildings. We have all these resources that already exist in the public education sector. Many of them, by and large, paid for at this point. The ongoing expense is, is, is far more elastic than the underlying infrastructure that's, that's, that's covered, especially with a shrinking population and a system that's going out of date. The, the infrastructure is in excess of what the demand will be in 10 years. They could sell it. They could lease the space. They could provide jobs for, for teachers that can guarantee, you know, to get enough students. So I think that the, the premise can work, but it can't work as a, as a monopolized public education system. So I like the idea. I just don't think it can work with government. Uh, this next one uh, comes to me from Bradley, and it's this article I stumbled across reading something else. Apparently a while back, the FDA approved lighter fluid as a food ingredient. Technically, since it's a process, they don't actually consider it an agreement, a la ammonia and pink slime. Uh, I'm not going to read this whole article. I'm going to read a very abbreviated version, uh, a very brief piece of it, because it goes on and on about hunting in Alaska and stuff like that. That's cool and all, but it's not really germane to the point. Anyway, um, the guy ha has broken out in hives from eating pilot bread crackers. Uh, so he says, That night, hives showed up all over my body. I laid awake, scratching, wondering what it could be. I was positive I hadn't eaten anything out of the ordinary, nothing I'm allergic to. I hadn't gone to anyone else's house to eat. In the morning on the counter, there was an ambiguous blue box. Out of curiosity, I flipped it over and read the ingredients. Artificial flavor, TBHQ. Since when is that in pilot bread? Since when is it needed? TBHQ in short for, uh, is, is short for tertiary butyl hydroquinine, a form of butane, basically lighter fluid. Lighter fluid is one thing I haven't drunk before, so I wasn't aware I was allergic to it. Last I knew, THBQ was against the law and food companies were spraying it on the inside of potato chip bags to get around it being considered an ingredient. I did know TH, TBHQ was definitely not a subsistence food. Here's a couple of quotes I found out about it. Quote, ingesting a single gram of the chemical can cause nausea, vomiting, ringing in the ears, delirium, a sense of suffocation and collapse. Ingesting five grams of TBHQ can kill you. And, quote, although TBHQ might be safe in small doses, that doesn't mean it's healthy for you. And since it's used to preserve processed foods that are naturally oily or fatty, avoiding these foods would certainly be a healthy choice, end quote. Um, so... <laughs> The thing is that pilot bread crackers are, they don't need this. They don't need this. There's no, so you can take, see what they use this for is when you take a, something like a potato chip that has an inherent amount of oils in it, especially vegetable oils. Uh, the oil is the part that's not very shelf stable. The, the pretty much dehydrated potato, that's what a potato chip is. It's been dehydrated with hot oil. 
Okay, that's that's the oil has boiled the moisture out and made it crispy. It's like a French fry gone nuclear, right? The chip itself is remarkably stable. What goes bad is the oil. It can go rancid. So by adding lighter fluid to the oil, the oil is less likely to go rancid. So since you're not supposed to use this as an ingredient, you use it as part of a process, spray the inside of your potato chip bag, and then when the chips go in there and get sealed, they're basically infused with the aroma of butane. Yay. Um, and the, the government's completely okay with this. So when you hear people that say, oh, we need government to do this, we need government to do that, people could be poisoning your food without government. Actually, people are poisoning your food with government. On purpose, and the government knows about it, and it's okay. So it, it, it makes you start to question how much value something like the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, brings to the table for the billions of dollars they cost us. You know, what does the FDA cost you every year as a taxpayer? Well, that number would be $4.36 billion as of 2012. $4.36 Three, six billion dollars we pay for the FDA. Uh, that does a lot of, a lot of things, right? Redirected or given back to the American people or what have you. And what does the FDA give us? Well, they give us lighter fluid in our, in our food. And they persecute people for saying things like a natural remedy works when we know that it does. They declare that if you say something like fermented foods like sauerkraut can help you with digestive disorders, which we know historically they can, that the sauerkraut has become a drug and is subject to their regulations. They, they continuously persecute a war on the drug marijuana, a.k.a. cannabis, uh, with absolutely no validity whatsoever in the way that it's done. Um, I just don't know how we could do without them. I, I just think that we need them so badly, and sarcasm in, in big air quotes, right? Um, please, when you believe that your government is doing anything to preserve and protect your health, realize that what they're doing is lining the pockets of the people that pay their salaries. And, you know, a potato chip company knows that its product is more shelf-stable and therefore more profitable if they spray it with butane, so they're going to spray it with butane. And as long as it doesn't kill you dead overnight, they're not worried about it. And uh, it's another reason, it's just another reason to not eat processed foods. Uh, I can't say that I never eat chips or anything like that. But here's the big problem. This is the big problem. A lot of times when stuff like this is done, it's not on the label. Because it's not in the food. So if you spray the inside of the bag, you don't have to say that you did it. So you don't know. So you read something like organic corn chips, and it says like sunflower oil, organic corn, salt, water. Yeah, corn's not the greatest thing in the world to be eaten, but hey, you know, everybody wants lots of chip now and then. Um, and you think that's all you're getting. There's no guarantee you're not getting butane. And I guess the only way is to individually contact manufacturers and get them to go on record and state whether or not they do things like this. And uh, that's what you thought government was for, right? Wrong. Government tells them how to do it and stay legal. And as long as you're big enough, you can comply with almost anything, and we can squish little guys. 
Uh, don't be surprised if in the future they say that since this prevents oils from going rancid and rancid oils can be toxic, uh, that this is required and your little old lady down the street that wants to make kettle chips isn't allowed to anymore unless she too gets a butane sprayer. I'm just saying. Uh, let's take another one. Uh, this next one here comes to me from, who does this come to me from? It comes to me from, well, Mike. Mike says, this is an article that may be fun to do a whole show on or make a really easy show. Wait, you didn't write this, did you? Uh, and it's 16 signs that you're a slave to the Matrix. And I may do a, a whole show on this if you guys want me to. Uh, coming back into January next year, uh, I'll be looking for shows to do. And if you guys want this to be a full show where I expound on these individual ones, uh, I'll do it. And if not, you can just read the article and see what the article what the guy that wrote the article has to say about it. And it's uh, a Sigmund Fraud, which I guess is a pen name. And uh, I'm just going to read the 16 points, not even the commentary on them. Number one, you pay taxes to people you'd like to see locked up in jail. And again, let me again read you the, the topic here. 16 signs that you're a slave to the Matrix. You pay taxes to people you'd like to see locked up in jail. Number two, you go to the doctor, but you're still sick. Number three, you pick Team Democrat or Team Republican and argue with your friends and family and coworkers about politics. Number four, you're hard, you're work, you work hard doing something you hate to earn fiat dollars. Number five, you're willing to accrue personal debt to fund the acquisition of consumer, uh, a consumer oriented, acquisition of consumer or consumer oriented lifestyle. Huh. I think he's got a typo there. I think what it's supposed to say is you're willing to accrue personal debt to fund the acquisition of a consumer-oriented lifestyle. Uh, I think he's got consumer in there twice. Six, uh, you converse with real people about ongoing happenings on TV shows. <laughs> Seven, you don't have anything to hide from total surveillance. Eight, you think the world would be safer if only government had guns. Nine, you knowingly drink fluorided water. Fluorinated water even though it says fluorided water. <laughs> you knowingly consume toxic poisons like MSG and aspartame. Eleven, you depend on pharmaceutical industries uh, on the pharmaceutical industrial complex for the management of your own mental health. Twelve, you haven't yet stopped watching your local and national news programming. Thirteen, you're more concerned with television sports or other mindless distractions with the quality of your natural environment. The next one, you are skeptical of any way of life that hasn't been proven or validated by modern science. Fifteen, you've never questioned the popularized version of ancient history and the origins of civilization. Sixteen, you haven't yet realized that you're a spiritual being living a human existence. Uh, I don't know that I agree with everything this guy has to say, but I agree with all of these points. I certainly could expound on them. I would like to just expand a little bit on 16 for you today since uh, we are coming into the end of the year. Uh, Christmas is a very important time for many people religiously. Uh, I think that there's a certain amount of religious significance to this time of year, no matter who you are. Uh, for pagans, yesterday we just had the, well, we all had uh, the winter solstice, but it has a meaning to the people of pagan faiths that it doesn't have to the rest of us. Um, I, myself, being a deist, have a belief in a creator or God, but I don't follow any organized faith or religion. Um, but yet, these symbolic times have meaning to me as well. Um, I don't talk about religion hardly at all on this show because I don't think any good is going to come from it because I'm pretty much going to 
piss off almost everybody that listens to the show from from the Jewish person to the Christian person to the atheist person to everybody. Because since I don't follow any of those faiths, I can't make any of those people happy. Other than I can say I respect what you believe and I appreciate what you believe and you should believe what you want to believe. And that's usually not good enough for people. They want to have heated debates about it. But I do think that a person that does not have a spiritual component to their life has a gaping hole which cannot be filled by anything intellectually or physically in the world. I believe that. You don't have to believe that, too. You don't have to get a big argument with me if you're an atheist. Um, I, I really have no desire to convert anybody from anything. But to me, it is important to have a spiritual centering in your world. And, and that can be a very simplistic spiritual centering that I think even some people that would call themselves agnostics or atheists might be able to obtain. Uh, it'll probably lead them away from true atheism uh, if they do so, but it's probably okay. Because I think that the majority of people that call themselves atheists uh, have wholesale rejected modern religion. And I don't think one need embrace modern religion to understand that there are things greater than us. As, as individual beings, that there is a cosmological constant, if you want to take it to a, a scientific level. There is a, 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 a consciousness, I believe, that is greater than any one individual, that there is evidence for this, that one not need take solely a leap of faith, that looking at scientific evidence, the deeper we look, the more interconnected the universe becomes. Some will use that as a way to prove that their version of, of religion is accurate, and, and some will use it to simply say that there is something more. I'm of the second camp. I believe there simply is something more, and for me, that's enough. But I think that, to me, the mystery and beauty of that which is creation as a total is something so monumentous and so impressive and that most of us in our modern world that are in the matrix being con controlled, which is sort of the underlying theme of everything that came in this week, that's one of the ways that we're controlled. So you don't have to call it spiritualism, but if you don't ever stop to contemplate the beauty of a tree or the mystery of life within a single blade of grass or the beauty of a sunset, if you don't ever pull yourself out of the the false microcosm of control that exists in our world long enough to contemplate how important and meaningless your existence is at the same time, then you are easily controlled. Now, is how a person's existence can be meaningless and important at the same time? It's a good spiritual question for you to examine, so no matter your faith or lack thereof, I leave that to you today to examine. How can your existence be monumentally important and meaningless at the same time, no matter what answer that you come up with, including I think Jack is nuts? The examination of questions like that are one of the chief ways that you can disconnect yourself from the systems of control that exist in our modern world today. There has been never a time in the history of human events where people were more enslaved and yet falsely believed themselves to be free as today. We have people chanting USA number one, the free and the brave, while they are completely and totally controlled. More on that in a bit, but you can read the entire article 
by Sigmund Fraud uh, over at truththeory.com. I will have a link in today's show notes. And yeah, there's a play on words there, right? Uh, the next question is one I get different versions of many times, and I only answer it maybe one in every 40 times it comes in because, uh, as I've said before when I've answered this question, it's difficult for me to go into, and I don't really feel comfortable giving people such monumentous advice as this decision overall. I want them to make their own decision because uh, either way you may come to regret doing it or not doing it, and I don't want to be the cause of your regret. I want you to d decide for yourself what works for you. But here's the question. This is from Buck. Buck says, um, what are your thoughts on joining the military? I'm 19 years old, sophomore in community college, getting my residency in Montana for vastly cheaper tuition. After looking at how expensive the next couple of years could potentially be, I'm considering joining the Air Force. I'm looking into the, this option mainly uh, for great college benefits as well as experience I could get out of it. I want to become a mechanical engineer. Getting there is going to cost me thousands of dollars I don't currently have. Being as I hate having debt, the tuition assistance program and the GI Bill are appealing to me. So finally getting to my questions, how do you feel about enlisting? Do you regret your decision to enlist? Is there anything someone considering the military should know? Any advice on this would be greatly appreciated. I know signing a contract for four years isn't exactly taking the chains off of slavery, but racking up student debts doesn't get me closer to the personal liberty either. Thanks for everything you do, Buckhorn. Um, I'll tell you, this is very difficult for me to answer because there's a lot of things going on here. First of all, let's get to the, the crux of it. Do I regret joining the military? And the answer is no. And in many ways, I believe that joining the military in some ways saved my life from a life of mediocrity and opened up the doors for me to the incredible, wonderful life that I've had for the last 20 plus years. That had I not done that, I would probably be living in some rat hole, two bit house somewhere in the coal region of Pennsylvania. Um, and dealing with all of the things that, that, that are there in the drudgery of my past, and I probably would be there. I, I don't know. I can't say that for sure, but I know that when I joined the military and I left that place, it was the first time I really discovered how much bigger the world really was, and I was part of something that was bigger than me, bigger than myself, I believed in the mission at the time 100%. When you are willing to risk your life to do things like jump out of airplanes and you're willing to do more than even those around you who are already willing to do more. And, and trust me, when you join the military, you've, you've agreed to do more than the average person ever will. You've agreed to commit at a higher level. You have agreed to uh, to strive at a level that most people will not strive for ever in their lives. And then you say, I'm willing to do even more. And I'm willing to risk my safety, my life to do more. And I'm willing to prove that I'm worthy of that honor of risk by getting through something that's that's not something everybody just gets to do. You have to you have to work hard You know, to get through some of the schools that I went to and, and what have you, or to get into some of them. And it changes you. And it is a brotherhood. You can call it a brotherhood, a sisterhood, a family, I guess is better. Because, I mean, I served along some really good female soldiers. So a family. 
and I, I cannot say that if I went back in time, I would not have joined the military. I can't say that. I think that not joining the military for me may have been one of the biggest mistakes I could have ever made in my life, that I, I would have probably lived a life of mediocrity. It's not what the military did for me while I was in the military. It was what the military changed about me. And then I had a very long walk from basically political agnostic to conservative to libertarian back to political agnostic that I went through in my life. Uh, I was a young person that was apathetic about government because I was disillusioned like a lot of people when you're in your early 20s, and I just didn't give a shit. And now I'm agnostic and apathetic about government because I know it doesn't matter. Uh, I care more than ever before, but I know that that's not the way to make change. So it was a very unique walk in my life uh, for me. And I think everybody's walk is very unique to them, themselves. So I think that only the individual making this decision can make this decision. I think you have to think about some things, though. If you are going to go to college, let's say for a couple of years, bang out your first two years in community college. And then you're going to go to the Air Force and you're going to get a GI Bill, college fund, whatever, tuition assistance. You can go to school while you're in active service. You're not going to do it at all while you're in whatever schooling they're putting you through. And you can do it, but it's never full time. It's never really, it, it's very, it's not like you're going to come out at the end of those four years and, and have made up those other two years and have your degree done. Right. So you're going to do two years in a community college. You're going to do four years in the Air Force. Then you're going to come out and do at least two years, uh, with your, with your college money. Uh, to get your degree. So you're taking a four-year process and turning it into an eight-year process, in my estimation. I, I, I really feel that way. And it, I'm not saying it's not worth doing, but you know how you do it, what job you get while you're in the Air Force, is it germane and relevant to your, uh, to your degree path? Those things are, are critical as well. Um, And I don't know, man. If you do two, you're only talking about two years of university for your degree. And it just seems to me that over four years, you could have earned enough money with job uh, to pay that off if you really wanted to. And the sacrifices you make will be significant. But they will not be as significant as the sacrifices you will make to your liberty by joining the military. I personally think that the military today is best for people that know exactly what they're getting into and want to do it anyway. Or people that know that they need some level of a foundation that the military can give them in their lives. I would not join the military solely because it's a way to pay for college. If I had other reasons to join fully informed, open-eyed reasons where I wanted to be in the military. And college was a benefit. It might be part of the decision, but in and of itself is not a reason to join the military. That's the best advice I can give you there. So if, if college wasn't on the table, if you say, hell no, I wouldn't do this, don't do it. Find another way. Apply for every scholarship under the sun. Apply for every grant you can get your hands on. Get a job and go to school part-time. Do whatever you have to do and stay the hell out of the military if you are only doing it for college money. And I can tell you that all of the people that I know that joined solely for college money tended to regret their decision. 
I think the reason that even though I am a thousand miles away from where I was as an individual now than I was then that I do not regret my decision to join the military is my decision was based on my desire to actually join the military. It was what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a soldier. I wanted to jump out of airplanes. I wanted the training. I wanted the structure. And I didn't want it for very long, which is why I joined for as brief an enlistment as I was able to do. And I did well while I was in the military, but I was under no misgivings that it would be my long-term future. I wanted what it could do for me as an individual, and I wanted to be tested, and I knew what I was getting myself into. And I think that is the only way that you can join the military and have a reasonable expectation that you're not going to hate the decision, at least temporarily. I think there were times when I was in the military where I was being asked to do something I really didn't want to do. And I realized how pointless some of it was. That I thought, this was stupid. But in the end, I know, and I think even then I knew, it was better for me in the long run. So that's the best answer I can give you to a very difficult question. Let's take another one. Um, the next one is about something going on in Illinois. And it's another Jack was right prediction coming true. So over a year ago, at least, probably closer to two, I first started talking about states creating their own retirement programs and forcing workers into them and calling it voluntary. But they really force you and you have to go out of your way to get out of the thing. Uh, and that it, it was going to be done to create this new pool of revenue for states, uh, basically Social Security 2.0. And that it would be done by the individual states. And the federal government would do it as well, but it would start with individual states. And the states that didn't do it would be the justification for the federal government to initially do it just for those poor residents of those poor states that are so greedy they won't do this for you by taking your money against your will. So the national program would roll out and they would say, well, I mean, you can do it, but you don't have to do it. It'll take you out of it. And then the states that already have it, you can do ours and theirs if you want to. And we'll just take your 2% or 3 percent a paycheck and put it in these great programs that will manage for you and and that the government would see this as a new slush fund of money because the money they take in today and agree to pay upon tomorrow they don't hold it for you they spend it and they promise it back to you that's how governments work and there's so many states on the verge of bankruptcy that, that this is very appealing because you can sell it to the people it's not a tax it's 100 voluntary It's the same type of retirement you'd get if you were employed by the state, which would be great. Why shouldn't you have it too? It's self-funding. It'll be wonderful. And that the states that would be most likely to do it would be the ones closest to teetering over the edge because they need the money the most. You know, California, New York, Illinois, places like that. All the guys on the naughty list. Well, Karim... <laughs> Posted a link in a recent episode on the blog and said, Illinois goes first. Another Jack prediction. December 13th, 2014. This is in the Illinois Herald. Illinois takes over private pension systems. <laughs> on December 13th, 2014, Skokie, Illinois, the Illinois state legislator quietly passed a new law a week ago that is reminiscent of a state takeover of private assets like in Venezuela or Russia. 
Under the new law, private workers at private companies and corporations will be auto-enrolled in Illinois' soon-to-be-created state-mandated pension fund. Critics not only call this a power grab, but a money grab as well. The same bureaucrats and elected officials that had already misplaced over $100 billion from Illinois' public sector programs, now they'll have total control over hundreds of billions of dollars in private pensions, too. New, Gale, New Illinois law awaits governor's signature. You want to bet he's going to sign it? I'll bet you a million dollars, guys. For the record, Illinois residents who don't work for the government can block the state from taking over their retirement savings, but they have to take the steps of opting out of the program. For those that don't opt out, every employee of every Illinois company in business for two years or more with 25 or more employees will be automatically enrolled in the state's pension fund. Currently, employed workers at private companies and corporations have been promised an opportunity to opt out of the program and stop the state from, ta from taking what percent? What percent did Jack say? 3% of their paychecks. All future workers will allegedly be able to opt out at the same time they fill out their typical new employee tax forms. According to the law, a committee will be created to oversee the pension program made up of government-appointed officials. The committee will then choose a Wall Street investment firm to manage the fund. So your government, Illinois residents, is going to take your money without your consent unless you go out of your way to tell them not to. 3% tax, let's call it what it is, and give it to a Wall Street fund uh, investment firm to invest. <sighs> None of the announcements or limited news reports mentions how people can get their money out of the fund short of retiring or what the penalty is for doing so. It's substantial and hard. Let's, let's, let's assume that, right? And if this new state-run pension fund is anything like Illinois' current pension funds or the state's guaranteed Bright Start College Savings Program for parents, the money won't be there anyway. Illinois' government pensions funds have been looted for over $100 billion, and the Bright Star College Program collapsed after the state treasurer's office and Oppenheimer funds allegedly defrauded Illinois' parents and stole most of the fund's money. The state had to sue Oppenheimer to get back even a small portion of the money deposited by parents when the state finished managing the college funds of 65,000 Illinois' parents and their no longer college-bound children in 2009. Families were given back only 50 cents on every dollar they deposited over the years. And there's uh, more to go from there. You can read the rest of the article if you want to. But let me tell you, this is just the beginning. And, and this stuff where they say it's mandatory for all companies who have been in business for more than two years that employ more than 25 people. Do you know what that's going to do? Do you know a lot of lot of Illinois reticents are going to do? Let me in. My employer only has five people. It's not mandatory for them. I want in. They'll create some kind of form that you can fill out that makes your employer do it. You just won't be mandatory as in they do it unless you tell them not to. They'll go on a marketing campaign for this. So this is the state that single-handedly has done the worst job of any state infinity in this country, even worse than Michigan, not a lot of Detroit. This state, Illinois, has done the worst, 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 worst ever job of managing the pensions of state employees, ever infinity, that bad. Probably, probably worse than any other two states put together have become the first state to say, well, we're going to do it for everybody. And our buddies in Wall Street are going to manage this. Let me tell you there's a couple things going on here. Number one, a lot of the money will get to Wall Street. It will go into stocks and bonds and stuff like that. Okay, And then this is what that's going to do. 
artificial inflation of the, the stock market and the ability to give larger and larger control to institutional investors in manipulating the market both up and down, creating great big new slush funds that will be managed for a fee, okay? So no matter whether they win, lose, or draw, the companies will earn money on them, including if they lose money and make it on the backside through ulterior investment methodologies, okay? Think of how much money we're talking about here. Think of how much money we're talking about here. I mean, this is this is not chump change. Population of uh, Illinois is about 12.8 million. Let's assume one-sixth of the population is enrolled in this. One-sixth. Because you got government employees, retired employees, small companies. Just one-sixth. So you would look at about two million. Two million and change. Two million people at 3%. If all two million of them made the state minimum wage of $8.25 an hour, okay, the total income that would be taxed by this retirement program of... Uh, Of six million. And again, no, you think everybody makes minimum wage. I know not everybody's full-time, whatever, but we've already gone down to only one-sixth of the population, minimum wage based on a 40-hour week. And the total weekly income that they're going to be dinging here then would be, and this is very, very, very ridiculously conservative, $660 million a week. A week. 3% of that's about $19.8 million a week. These people are going to take out of the, 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 the paychecks of people in the state of Illinois, 19.8 million in change a week they're going to extract from the pockets of Illinois residents. Hold on, I want to make sure I get this right. So I, 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 I paused the recording here and I built a spreadsheet to give you the actual breakdown based on 2 million people at minimum wage on a 40-hour week. This number is way, way low for how much money Illinois is about to roll into the stock market with this program. At eight twenty-five an hour, at two million people, that means every hour, uh, citizens of Illinois that are being subject to this are earning about sixteen point five million dollars in total. Weekly, that's a hundred and thirty-two million dollars. Uh, actually, that's 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 daily. Weekly, it's six hundred sixty million. Annually, this is a total of thirty-four billion three hundred and twenty million dollars, which comes out to on a three percent take into this. Retirement scam, one point oh two nine billion and six hundred thousand dollars. So call it a billion bucks and change. Again, this is based on one third of the population and everybody make a minimum wage. And the reality is, they don't all make minimum wage. And don't think that they're going to say that the guy, you know, they're going to cap this like Social Security or something. They're going to take every bit that they can get out of this. And so what you're talking about is a billion. Dollars a year minimum taken from the citizens that work in the state of Illinois out of their pocket, handed to investment firms on Wall Street, and invested in investments. Now, this gets bigger if you start figuring how this is going to work. Now, the state of Illinois, in no way, shape, or form, is just going to do this to be nice guys. Right, just because they they want better for their citizens, and you know they've they've changed their ways. The the the, the hellhole of of government control and regulation is determined that the private sector can do a better job. Do you really believe that? So the way you read this, you're thinking, okay, what they're going to do? They're going to take a billion bucks a year, give it to the Madison Avenue people, and they'll get kickbacks or something. No, 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 no. The the state of Illinois is going to get budgetary funds from this. There will be some rigmarole way. 
where this will be run through some kind of bond nonsense, where Illinois gets the money now, okay, and the investment firm gets the money now. And the investment firm gets to invest the money through some sort of derivative nonsense. So the state gets the money, just like Social Security. The Illinois will promise you the money back. They will create some sort of investment fund to get you the money back. But they're going to spend the lion's share of the revenue now. That's how this is going to work. And they're going to use the old money to pay off the new money. Again, this is a, this is a state right now that is currently lacking a hundred billion dollars from their own pension funds that has just come up with a way to take a minimum, a bare minimum of a billion dollars a year into public pension funds from private workers' hands. And it's not a billion dollars a year. It's probably 10 to 20 billion dollars a year if you do the math the right way. I gave you the lowest conservative estimate that I could come up with. And This is sickening. And I'll tell you what, it's going to be heralded as a wonderful thing. Uh, and if you don't think dumping a few billion extra dollars here and there into the stock market can do some good for the number, you're, you're out of your head. Of course it can. It can also be used to manipulate the market in a variety of ways, up, down, left, right, and sideways, which is what these people are going to do. And what do you want to bet that our good friends over at Goldman Sachs are going to have their hands all over this? It'll never go to Goldman Sachs uh, directly. It'll be some company that will actually be owned by a company that's owned by Goldman Sachs. That, that's how it'll work, you know. So it might as well be Goldman Sachs, but the, it won't be as politically wrong. So the next state to do this is California. California is already running test beds and seeing about this. So California will do it, and it'll be like, why can't everybody have this? I'm telling you, this is coming. This is what I call Social Security 2.0. This is going to be where the theft is public and the losses are private. Okay, just like we had the bailouts where the profit that the companies made was theirs. They got to keep it. It was private, but the loss was public. The public funds had to bail them out. This is going to be kind of like a, another version of that. When you lose your money in this thing, it will be your loss, your private loss. But the gain from taking the money from you will go into the public funds. This is not going to be sequestered and earmarked into a nice little lockbox a la Al Gore where your money is in the hands of trained investors on behalf of the state. And if you think the state is just going to get a little 1% management fee out of this money, you're out of your tree. What they'll probably do is say that a portion of this money to protect their residents must be invested in state and municipal bonds. And then the money's directly into the hands of the state and the, and the municipals uh, of, of the state. See, that's all you have to do. You tell you, here's your, you guys do whatever you want with this money and investment, you know, but 25% as a protective measure for the citizens of Illinois have to be invested right here in the state of Illinois. And they'll find other ways to create derivatives and spin derivatives out of that to put more money into the public coffer for spending today, creating additional debt for tomorrow, but don't worry about it. It's all okay. We promise we'll pay the money back. I don't trust any state, but boy, I don't trust Illinois. But you guys do what you want to up there. You seem to have uh, given up the ghost a long time ago. I do have to say one thing I'd be remiss on if I, if I didn't say it before I go on, and that is that I put a link here, and the title of the article is, Illinois Takes Over Private Pension Systems. That is an inaccurate headline that this author has used for his post. Um, it is clearly done for sensationalism and to make it look like Russia or whatever, but this is not a takeover of private pension funds. 
I mean, it's scummy. I've just explained to you in, in minute detail how scummy it really is and what it really means. But it's not the takeover of public pension funds. The takeover of public pension funds would be if you're an Illinois worker and you have a Roth IRA or 401k or standard conventional whatever, it now is under the stewardship of the state. That would be a state takeover of uh, of the pension funds. It would also be if they went in and said, if you are a uh, a state employee, if you you know a Illinois company, and you're running a pension, a true pension, old school pension fund for your workers, where you are putting money in on their behalf, uh, we're taking over that money. No, this is the creation of a public of a public pension. Through the use of privately earned dollars, this is something. It's a brand new creation, and it's just like Social Security, except that you can opt out of it. Where you can't really. There's a few little places you can still opt out of Social Security. Here's the thing: there were places you could opt out of Social Security in the beginning, and there's there were fewer and fewer and fewer over the years until they were all closed off and pinched off to almost nothing left that you can get out of it with. Don't think they won't start. See, you get this in place by saying, hey, you don't have to participate. It's only companies that have been in business for two years, so they have time to get their organizational structure. At least 25 employees. The employee can opt out anytime they want. Why wouldn't we want? It's their own money. It doesn't cost the employers anything. You get that in place. And then you say, you know, we've been doing the math, and the, 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 the employees are just not, they're just not, you know, saving enough money for their future. And they're going to create an extreme burden on the public in the future. So, you know what we should do? It's only 3%. It's not that much money. Just like Social Security, why don't we make our employers match that? And they'll drum up wild public support for it. It's only 3%. They should be doing this for you anyway. And then you install that. And then you have, indeed... A public takeover of private pension pension funds because now you're, you're you're mandating the employer to provide the money, and then you have a state level social security, and that's the goal here. But it is not at this time taking over private pension systems, and authors on the internet should use their damn brain and not participate in yellow journalism. What the state's doing is bad enough; we don't need to lie about it, or at least be sensationalistic or misleading about it. As we ran out the end of the year, here's one that's kind of just a, a fun little one. I deleted the email somehow, but I already have it in the uh, show notes, so I can't say who sent it to me now by first name, but uh, I think that uh, that person will know who they are. And it basically said, I really like your shows on Guns and Firearms. What is Jack Spirico's personal dream gun? If you could just like conjure up a gun, what would it be? I think a lot of people will be surprised. It would not be a handgun, and it would not be tactical. It wouldn't be a machine gun. It wouldn't be uh, some super uh, specked out uh, thing uh, from a tactical standpoint. Uh, the gun I've always wanted and I've never invested in for myself would be a custom-made uh, mountain rifle-style rifle, lightweight, bolt-action, um, probably built on something like a, a pre-64 Winchester. Uh, there's a variety of bolt guns that this could be done on that I would be very happy with. Ruger uh, makes a very good bolt gun that this could be done on. But it would be basically a, a, a lightweight mountain rifle in .338-06. Uh, I think that would be the the one North American gun that could do all things without beating yourself up. And I think it is it is actually a shame that 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 caliber has never really caught on uh, as being just a mainstream 
you know, not a semi-wildcat caliber like it is. Uh, I think that if you wanted something that, with the right bullets, you could put down a, a relatively small whitetail like we have here in Texas without, like, blowing up the meat, uh, but yet you wanted to be able to knock an elk down at 350 yards, something you'd be comfortable hunting moose or bear with, uh, even going to Alaska. And, and I, I would go to Alaska tomorrow and hunt big moose or brown bear with the 33806. Uh, I think it is probably the most perfect caliber that's ever been created, and I do not own one. Um, and I can't tell you why, other than like every time I've thought about doing it, I've thought to myself, first of all, there's no inexpensive version of this. You can't go out and buy a $300 Savage in .338.06. It doesn't exist. So you're already going to pay a significant premium if you're going to buy this gun. The lowest price, decent-looking thing I can find on Gun Broker right now is a Belgian Mauser that was customized into this, uh, and it's 850 bucks is the opening bid on it with no bids, by the way. Um, Production-wise, Weatherby Mark V, uh, you're looking at like 1100 bucks uh, for for the Weatherby Mark V ultralight in the in the 30.06, a production gun that's actually built in it. I don't think Weatherby ever built like the Vanguards in it or anything like their low-priced Weatherbys with it. So you're just not going to go out and buy that caliber in like a, a Savage, you know, Model 10, an old Savage Model 10 you can pick up for a few hundred bucks. If it existed, I would buy one like that. If you could just, you know, for a couple hundred dollars, 300, 400 bucks at the most for a, just a stock bolt gun in the cartridge. But it's not there. It doesn't exist. So if you're, you're already looking at where you're probably going to be into it for a grand, Uh, on the on the rifle uh, itself, then you might as well go custom. And like I'm on Gunbroker right now, looking at a Cooper 52 uh, custom rifle uh, that's very very nice, and it is about two thousand dollars. So whenever I've thought of spending that kind of money on a rifle, and then thinking, well, you're probably looking at putting you know five hundred dollar piece of loophole glass on it or something like that, and and everything else, you know. All I could ever think to myself is, there's so many things in my life that I want more than I want that gun. I want to build a greenhouse. I want to give my wife a, a new kitchen that she deserves. I want to help my son, you know, with getting his life started. I mean, I, I, I just think of so many things that, you know, and I'm sitting here and I'm looking at an old uh, 1917 Enfield in 3006. Uh, that was kind of a, a sporterized, bubba-eyed version of, of that rifle. Uh, the ears taken off. It's the Enfield style with the old, like the 303 British Enfield, but this was the U.S. version. And I look at that gun and I think there is nothing I really need to do that that old gun that I have 250 bucks into that I bought used from a buddy won't do. Or I have a little 308 Savage that's upstairs in my closet. Every deer that's ever been pointed at, there's been one shot and a dead deer. And I just look at the reality that I'm probably not going bear hunting anytime soon. Um, haven't been elk hunting in years. Um, I, I don't have enough time just to hunt, period. And when I look at buying that gun, I just don't see the need. But if somebody said you can just conjure a gun, and they said, you know, you're doing this for yourself. This isn't so you can conjure it and then sell it and get money. 
right? Because because then I would do like some really beautiful double rifle that's worth fifty thousand dollars or something, and and I would say, okay, now I'm going to sell it. I'm going to get my dream gun, and I'm going to get forty thousand dollars to develop my property, right? So if it was just like you need to own this gun. This will be a gun for you to hunt with. This will be a gun for you to hand down to your son, your grandson. This this gun will be part of your legacy. And you know what do you re- what really typifies the way you view rifles and rifle marksmanship and 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 the hunting uh, tradition of North America? It would be a custom Mountain 338.06. And I know that a lot of people would say, "Wow, that's really kind of oddball or whatever," but. Um, I'm a person that when it comes to seeing something that really has hit perfection from a standpoint of what it's supposed to do, I recognize it. And there isn't another caliber that I can make the case for. The closest would be the 35 Whalen, which is a lot easier to come by. But in the end, that old Wildcat that started out is the 333. Uh, O'Keefe, I think is what it was, because one guy working with uh, Elmer Keith, uh, but it was Elmer Keith and some of his boys had this 333 before the 338 bullet existed. That's where it originally, it's where its, it's, its grandparent is. And, uh, or as I said, it's parent. The grandparent would be the 06 case, and then its parent would be the, the 333 O'Keefe, I think is what it was called. And then when the 338 Winchester came out and really great bullets came out, in .338, that's when somebody said, let's stick this together. And uh, I don't think anybody's ever done anything uh, from looking at a medium bore rifle that, unless you're shooting Cape Buffalo or something like that, it is everything that you would ever want in a big game rifle, from the, from the, the smallest deer to the biggest elk. If you can't get it done with that, you probably can't get it done anyway. Uh, let's take another one. And I want to play something for you now. Uh, a, a listener sent this to me today, and I had never heard this before. And I am a huge fan of the music of Jackson Brown. Uh, Jackson Brown and Warren Zevin are, are two guys that I've always just thought their music was just beautiful and soulful. And I can tell you Jackson Brown hasn't lost a step. I'm also a Jimmy Buffett fan. Yes, Jack Spirico is a parrot head. Uh, though it's waned on me. The last time we went, we really... We're like, I think Jimmy's reaching a retirement age and doesn't want to accept it. And all the craziness around us and dope smoking and stuff like that. We're just like, this is not our world. I want to go home. You know, I actually left early, which I'd never done from a Buffett concert. But I've, I, I do love Jimmy Buffett's music as well. And a few years ago, we went to a Jimmy Buffett concert where Jackson Brown opened for him. And Jackson Brown's been around a while, okay? Uh, the song I'm going to play for you here in a minute's been around for 30 years and was around during the Iran-Contra affair, just to give you an idea of what was going on in the world at the time. And uh, he came out and he played, and this guy has not lost a step. Playing in a soccer stadium, open air sounded like it was a CD. So he is a talented guy. But this song I'm not playing so much for his talent, and even if you're not a fan of, let's say, you know, classic rock, which is the the, the world that you would put a Jackson Brown, the mellow classic rock. Um, this song, if you listen to the words, says an awful lot about the world we live in today and the people that actually control society 
and all the blood that's shed in the name of freedom that not necessarily is actually leading to freedom, more about business interests. And uh, if you listen to this, it actually is hard to get your head around the fact that this song was released in the 80s, the early 80s, mid-80s. And it's 2014, about to be 2015. And uh, indulge me if you're not typically a person who listens to music and at least listen to the words here. And uh, I'll come back with one more for you, and this kind of ties right into it. And as we end this year, and you find yourself being part of the grand puppet show, where your strings are pulled and your emotions are tripped on, uh, this is a good song of reflection. And uh, so here we go. Jackson Brown with the song, Lives in the Balance. Something to happen For a week or a month or a year With the blood and the ink of the headlines And the sound of the crowd in my ear You might ask what it takes to remember When you know that you've seen it before Where a government lies to a people And a country is drifting to war And there's a shadow on the faces Of the men who sent the gun To the wars that are fought in places Where their business interest runs On the radio talk shows and the TV You hear one thing again and again How the USA stands for freedom And we come to the aid of a friend But who are the ones that we call our friends? These governments are killing the
link to where you can listen to that on YouTube and see the video that goes along with it. And it's actually the original video. Um, the, the video that came out back when there were music videos that we, actually were people singing and, you know, it was on TV and there was no real world or whatever the other reality TV craps on MTV and VH1 now, back when there were real videos. And, um, man, I just want to read some of those words to you as we go into our last segment here. Um, I've been waiting for something to happen for a week or a month or a year with the blood in the ink of the headlines and the sound of the crowd in my ear. You might ask what it takes to remember when you know you've seen it before, when a government lies to a people and a country is drifting to war. There's a shadow on the faces of the men who send the guns to the wars that are fought in places where their business interests run. On the radio talk shows and TV, you hear one thing again and again, How the USA stands for freedom, and we come to the aid of a friend. But who are the ones we call our friends? These governments killing their own. Or the people who finally can't take any more, and they pick up a gun, or a brick, or a stone. And there are lives in the balance, there are people under fire. There are children at the cannons, and there is blood on the wire. There's a shadow on the faces of the men who fan the flames of wars that are fought in places where we can't even say the names. They sell us the president the same way. They sell us our clothes and our cars. They sell us everything from youth to religion. The same time, they sell us our wars. I want to know who the men in the shadows are. I want to hear somebody asking them why. They can't be counted on to tell us who our enemies are but they're never the ones to fight or to die. And there are lives in the balance. There are people under fire. There are children at the cannons. And there is blood on the wire. And if you think to yourself, yeah, Jack, you know what? Um, when I think about the stuff that's going on in the world right now and the world that we live in with Barack Obama, yeah, I see a lot of that. Please understand when this song was written, Ronald Reagan was our president. So if you think back to George Bush Sr. and George Bush Jr. and Ronald Reagan and you say, yeah, this, this resonates with me, but it doesn't resonate with you under Barack Obama, that's the point of the song. That's the whole point of the song, that it never changes. That it never changes. What changes is the way that it's sold to you. On that note, I want to conclude today with an email that came from a listener named Mark. It says, Hi, Jack. This year is coming to a close, and I wanted to extend a sincere thanks for the difference you've made in my life. I've been listening for roughly one year now, and recently I noticed a change in how I respond and perceive political stories. I'm sure you've seen the news stories about the $1.1 trillion spending bill passed recently. Even though I've removed many political Facebook pages, I still have a few left, and they come up in my news feed. When this story broke, I was surprised at how many people were shocked that Republicans voted for this and that they are funding the Obama executive order on amnesty. But then I realized I used to be where they are, still in the dichotomy. This was my confirmation that you, your attempt to try to get people to actually think had worked for me. As I read people's comments on the story, I came up with an analogy drawing on a cartoon show, The Peanuts. 
People who are shocked by these types of things are still thinking that Loosely will eventually hold the ball for Charlie. And they are Charlie. They're still running up to kick the football and falling on their backside. Hey, maybe one day Lucy will hold the ball for them, but I'm not holding my breath. As for me, I continue on the path of designing my life. Thanks for doing what you do. Merry Christmas to you and your family, Mark. And no, I'm not offended because Mark said Merry Christmas to me. Um, or Happy Holidays or Happy Hanukkah or Merry New Year or anything else. Anyway, so my thought on this is as follows. And it's something I try to catch myself on as often as I can. It takes a long walk to admit that the world that you once believed in so emotionally is bullshit. It takes a lot to walk away from it. It takes a lot to let go. And it's not easy. And what it takes is often years, especially if you were ever part of the system, like many of us were, if you've used logic and reason on some level in making your decision of which side of the dichotomy to be on, to admit that that was all wasted, that it wasn't going to matter and it doesn't matter. It's like if you were a professional race car driver and you found out that cars really were bad. And you knew that cars were, I'm not saying they are, I'm just saying like to make the analogy, how hard would it be for you to accept that cars are bad if you were a race car driver? Your whole life was built on driving cars really fast. Or if you're a public school teacher, it's very hard to get to a point where you admit that public education is so fundamentally flawed that it needs to be replaced. It's easy to say that when your retirement's not part of the equation, when you haven't given so much of your life in genuine contribution to it. How hard is it for a police officer to really admit that there are a certain portion of his ranks that aren't bad apples? It's so insulting. We had a whole discussion on that this year. Um, but they are, they are criminals. That there are, there's a criminal element within law enforcement when most law enforcement officers really do want to do the best job they can for people. So understand when you're asking someone to accept the fact that it really doesn't matter if it's Barack Obama that's president or George Bush or Al Gore, that in the end, the plan is the same. And in the end, most of these elections are determined before they occur, not with some kind of voter machine rigging, which I think happens on some levels. But in the end, it's it's the same way I was able to tell you exactly what the structure of the United States Senate would be after the recent election. Do you think I'm that smart? Please don't assign me that much intelligence. It's just looking at the numbers. And the people with the money are the people that are in power in this country. And they see which way the wind is blowing. And when possible, they harness it. And when possible, they shift it. And their only goal is money. They're not really trying to control you at the level that they are. That is the means by which they acquire money. You see, there's a fundamental reality that once people acquire a certain amount of wealth, there's two reactions that a person has. And one is to go... I don't really need or want anymore. If I can do good and that happens to get me more, fine. But I don't, I don't need any more money. 
And I don't really care if I ever have any more money. In fact, if I lost half of the money I had, I'd still not need money. So I'm going to just try to live and, and enjoy my life and, and be a good force for other people. And then there's the percentage of people that say, I want more. I want more. I want more. I want more. And I guarantee you, if you listen to this show on a regular basis, there's a number where you'd say, stop, if I was just giving you money. But said, here's a million dollars. I don't, what do I get? You get a million dollars. Okay, fine. You get $10 million. Okay. You get $50 million. All right. You get $100 million. Okay. All right, here's the deal. I will make it $200 million if you walk over to that little girl and just punch her in the face. You don't have to kill her. You don't have to really, really hurt her. You just have to. You already have the $100 million. I'll just double it if you just. You got to do it hard. I want to see her go down. I want to see her with a bloody nose. I want to see her crying. Punch that little girl in the face. I'll double your $100 million. Most of you'd go, no. The people that are worth billions will punch the little girl in the face to go from 100 to 200 million. Where you're going to go, I, 100 million dollars, I, everything I want and everything I want for everybody that I really, really care about, I can do. There is no need for me to do any harm to anybody at all for more. But there are people that want more and they want more and they don't care who gets hurt in their quest for more. It becomes like a video game. We all know that person that they're playing. I just got to level up, man. If I just keep doing this, I'm going to get to that next level. I'm going to get, I'm going to hit a hundred million or 200 million or, or 50 million or 1 million back in the day, right? When that was a big number and a, and a score. And I got to get to that number. I got to get to that number. And, and the, what, what really happens when they get to that number is nothing. It's just a freaking game. People who the number's never big enough for when it comes to money, your life is a game to them. Your life is a game to them. And republicanism is a marketing channel to get your money. And the Democratic Party is a marketing channel to get your money. That's all it is. And it's so easy for us when we really accept that To just go, it's all bullshit. And then when somebody starts spouting the bullshit, you think, how can another wise, intelligent person be this gullible? And you forget, you two were a Duracell battery plugged into the matrix with a tube shoved in the back of your neck not that long ago. And it's very important If you want to help people find freedom, to say what you know to be true, but to try to do so in a way that gives them the comfort necessary to exit at their own speed. In the movie The Matrix, where you take a pill and you wake up and you're in some protoplasmic ick and you go down a chute that looks like a water, which I never understood why that chute was there. I guess that's to get rid of you when you die. I, I guess, that makes sense. Okay, so I just answered my own question. Right? I've always wondered that. Why is there like this water park shoot when, when Neo wakes up in the Matrix, right? Um, 
It just doesn't seem to make any sense. But I guess that's what it would be when a when a D, when a D cell dies, a bad battery needs to be replaced. That's how they get rid of you. The computer pops you out. So in, in the movie, that's how it happens. It's this immediate awakening. But even in the movie, do you realize that the people that are offered the pill to come out of the matrix discover that there's there, there's something not right for themselves first. They don't just go around and, and just start jarring people out of it when they're not ready. And that's what so many of us do, that discover the reality of the world we live in. We want to yank people from it. We want to shove them down that gross tube as quickly as possible. We want to shove the pill down their throat. And that's a fantasy world of Hollywood movies with a stark basis in reality, a, an interesting allegory to tell a story with, but it is not reality. Something can be based on a reality and bear no resemblance to reality. That's the Matrix. You're not going to fly through the air, okay? You're not going to go and, and take on 27 agents with your bare hands and learn Kung Fu with a download, but the Matrix is real. The control mechanism is real. But in the... In the <laughs> In the movie, it is a perfect analogy. Because the purpose of the people in the Matrix is what? Energy. Power. Their batteries. They extract energy from an individual to power the machine. That's what you are to the machine. You're a battery. They extract your energy your passion, your concern, your labor, your blood, your treasure, and even your children. You understand that the system is designed so that now your children are born as more property of the system than they are of your own. And when you see all that, All you want to scream is, wake up, stop believing in fairy tales and bullshit. And focus on your own life because that's what the machine's actually afraid of. The machine is not afraid that everybody will become a Democrat. And the machine is not afraid that everybody will become a Republican. They've actually set those two marketing platforms up to be almost identical under the hood. But if they were cars, the bodies of the two vehicles are so radically different looking. And instead of anybody worrying about the engine and the brakes and the handling and the suspension, people want to argue about the hood ornament and whether there's a fin on the back and whether the car looks ecologically friendly or looks scary, just like assault weapons bans, right? That's It's just so perfect that they know that it's impossible that anybody that wants to buy this shitty car would ever end up in a place where the majority would want one or the other, that you're going to create almost a perfect divide, a 40-40 divide, and 20% of people going, huh, I don't really know which car I want this four years, the mushy middle. It's the perfect plan. And that a few percentile of people will wake up and go, this car's a piece of shit. They're both the same under the hood. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do, and it costs way too much money. And everybody will go, oh, you just gave up and surrendered. They know that. And if you want other people to realize it and to pull themselves out of it and free their own minds and create liberty in their own lives, you have to do it through example, not through beratement. 
And I catch myself, and it's understand, it's because I'm in the public eye and I deal with this crap every day, and you get tired of hearing it. But, Jack, if you just understood how deranged Barack Obama really is, have you seen Dinesh D'Souza? Oh, my God. You just want to scream. You're like, oh. You know, and you feel like, have I even been heard? I never said any of these people were good. I said they all suck. And your case to me is... But this guy sucks a little bit less than this guy. So the guy that sucks more is really bad, and this guy's not quite that bad. So if the best we can do is not quite that bad. We have to do that. <sighs> and you're not even paying attention to the hand that goes up the ass of both of them, and both of those hands are connected to the same group of oligarchs that control the nation. And that's why you get just stressed out. But in the end, every person must walk their own path, and they must discover truth for themselves in their own time. And the reason I want to finish this year talking about this is because just like Thanksgiving, you're about to have a whole bunch of family and friends that you don't see often together, and there's a temptation to argue this crap. It's not the time. If you want to preach freedom and liberty to your you know, uber neocon uncle, or your uber-liberal uh, you know, university professor, uncle, or whatever, demonstrate it. Don't, don't shove it at them. Because they'll never recognize, and it will scare the shit out of them if they do. It's like taking an animal that's lived its whole life in a cage and opening the door, and when it doesn't leave the cage, you go, what the hell's wrong with you? You start shoving it out the door. Imagine a wolf or a lion or a tiger or a dog that lived its whole life in a cage and was relatively content in that cage and didn't even know that the back, like they seen the front of the cage and all the stuff going around out there and they just figured this is their, their space within it all, but it was very controlled like a zoo. And if you open the back, there's a wilderness of complete freedom. And you, oh, the whole wall just came down in one shot. That animal turns and looks at it. Terrified. What do you think is going to happen to you if you go into that cage to help, air quotes, and try to push that animal out the back of that cage? Chomp. That's what's going to happen. You're going to get chomped. You just leave the wall down. And if the animal wants to pretend it's not open, you pretend it's not open too. And it'll go a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time until it realizes what it is. A free being. And freedom's that way. And then it will move in patterns and come back to be fed. Because that's where its food is. Till the first time it sees, what's that? A rabbit? Chomp. Oh, wait a minute. That's pretty good. I feel like I'm being what I'm supposed to be, a lion or a tiger or a wolf now. Huh. And then maybe it meets some other tigers or wolves. It starts to pack, behave like it's supposed to be. It finds its own kind. And it chooses to affiliate with its own kind. And then it's gone. It's not coming back. But because we have a level of compassion that's beyond what we think of as the animal kingdom, we keep coming back to the cages and going, Hey, guys come with us out here it's better out here it's free out here think for yourself 
that's fine. But don't go into the cage and try to shove them out the door. You're going to get chomped. Family relationships, friend relationships are not worth destroying because somebody's not ready to exit the cage yet. You took your own time to get there. Try to remember that, especially this time of year where things get heated and tense. Back off, talk about football. You can argue about that all you want. Most people don't take it too seriously. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution